baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all... Um, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, despite all these privileges is the idea, God was not pleased with them, and their bodies are scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples Examples for us to keep us from setting our hearts or craving evil things as they did. And so do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in revelry. Verse 8, and you, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did. And were killed by the destroying angel. Some of these things happened uh, to them. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul thinks we're in this place where we've seen God's great last initiative in Jesus Christ. Everything that's been happening before has been building up to this crescendo. And we have seen this and now await the final end. But we too must be warned. Verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. So now judge for yourselves what I say. Now he remembers his larger point in three different pieces here. Verse 16 is the first of these pieces. He's remembering taking the Lord's Supper. There's a, he's going to argue there's a connection, a spiritual connection, a, a bond, a fellowship that is established and experienced when we gather together. First he mentions the worship around the Lord's Supper. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a sharing, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation, that is this sharing or fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we share in the one loaf. And so again, the idea here is this. When we observe the supper, there is this spiritual communion between ourselves and the Lord, and we are brought together. There's a bond between us. It's not just something, so to speak, that's just a material thing. There's a genuine fellowship and communion. Verse 18, this is also true with 
some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Remember, they would share a meal afterwards, right? For some of these sacrifices. Consider the people of Israel, verse 18. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Now he goes on, verse 19, to talk about worshiping or participating in a pagan worship ceremony. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that the idol is anything? Paul's answer is no. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be in participation with, in fellowship with, in communion with the demons. You cannot eat or drink of the uh, cup of the Lord and then the cup of the demons uh, too. Uh, the, the mutually they don't fit together. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and then the table of demons. And he asks the question that drives the point home. If you think back to what happened to those children in, of Israel wandering around in the desert, having seen such privilege but then having failed so badly, he asks the question, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy, His zealousness for His covenant? Do you think you are stronger than He is? Well, these are sober warnings, but there's encouragement to be found as well. He reviews these sacred saving events. They were protected and guided by the pillar of fire. They were the ones who were able to walk through the sea when God divided it. They were then established in a covenant with Moses as his uh, administrator. They were baptized in the Moses, uh, Hebrews would later say as well. And they had seen so much and, and they'd gone so far. And yet they came to the place where many of them forfeited their destiny. And they brought punishment upon themselves. And so, Paul is worried, worried about this church at Corinth, that they too might be drawn into idolatry. And something funny happens in worship. It's not just some sort of mental intellectual connection. It's something that touches us at the, at the deeply human level. It's, it's not just mental, it's emotional and psychic. And there's something really profound that happens to us. And Paul notices, if we worship rightly, we live rightly. If we worship unwisely and we worship other things that we are not supposed to worship, then we fall to pieces morally. The two go hand in hand. So their great privilege did not make them secure. And so Paul begins to warn us. Verse 8. He wants us to flee from sexual immorality. And, and that follows this kind of, uh, or, or is in sync with this kind of a warning or, or encouragement rather that he gives us. He's not going to let us face temptations beyond what we are capable of, bear, of bearing. And he's going to give us a way out. Now most of us think when we hear that, that's a, a way of escape we think, right? We, we're going to be able to to, to uh, be spared this temptation. But the next line suggests maybe it's not so much escape, it's instead the, the wisdom of enduring it and coming out on the other side. 
And yet that's joined in this passage with the idea of fleeing immorality, which we've seen already in the last couple of weeks. It's not in the Bible, but I've sort of summarized this for my students a time or two. I've just encouraged people, sometimes you need distance. You always need discipline, right? Sometimes you can stay in the situation you're in and see that God will be faithful to help you endure and come out on the other side. There are other occasions where the practice is just so abhorrent and so on, you, you, you don't need to even be near it. You just need distance. Sometimes distance. Always discipline. And my word to you would be, Paul is using these kinds of appeals to us because he thinks that we too can squander our great privilege and get distracted and then start living in a way that would not please God. And so he says, no more of this, no more worshiping idols, verse 7, no more sexual immorality, verse 8, and, and no more, verse 9, putting God to the test. I, I don't know how exactly to phrase this. I wonder if we would be far off if we use the language of domestic bickering. Anybody else uh, told this, uh, or is this part of anybody else's upbringing? To put somebody's patience to the test. You ever heard that expression? And uh, are we to toy with God? Are we to just keep punching his buttons? Are we just to assume that he, he's not going to ever respond to our wrongdoing, never going to correct us? And Paul says, don't, don't be putting Christ to the test. Don't put God to the test. And then avoid the grumbling. And there are several scenes out of the Old Testament. I wonder if Paul just doesn't have sort of a collage of them already in mind when he's making these appeals. I think he probably alludes to Exodus 32 where the golden calf is. Now that, that's an act of idolatry that is unmistakable. Perhaps he has uh, that Numbers 20 passage. We looked at that some time ago actually uh, where Moses is uh, the one striking that rock. And there's a couple of stories like that. And then in Psalms uh, 78, you, you get the impression, at least some people do when they read that Psalms, that that was something that happened more than once. And, and so it, it became a part of, although I don't think it's dictated anywhere in the Scripture, but it became a part of, in, in Hebrew culture uh, to, to have this uh, image of that rock as something that accompanied them along the way. Now, Christians who read and people who read this story later they see more to it than that. Uh, when Christians come to this idea that the one, Jesus, is really God incarnate, uh, when they come to that place and they think God has made himself known in the flesh, uh, they, they come to this place where they think that that's not just something that occurred later on in time, but they think the word of God has been with God all along. And so when they look back to the Old Testament, they look for occasions to see when that word of God has been active and present. And here's a place where Paul says, you know, I think that's Christ already at work in the world. But they missed it. They ignored it. They didn't take the gift seriously. It didn't shape them and remake them. Instead, they were indifferent to it. And then they began to be restless, look for other things on which to set their affection and their attention and they begin in time to worship other ideas and other things. Having seen God at work, isn't it so amazing that they could be so fascinated and focused on something else that they would give it the attention that only belongs to God. In Numbers 25, there's a, 
uh, an, another allusion that I think Paul may have in mind where the, the men of Israel are attracted to the Moabite women and then they uh, have that kind of uh, intimacy and affection with the Moabite women and then they begin to worship the Moabite gods. It brings a terrible judgment upon them. And so Paul is trying to say, God's going to be with you. God's going to help you. He's not putting more on you than you can bear. But he needs you to be faithful and attentive and attuned to who he is. And you need to have this sort of a checklist there. Don't be worshiping idols. Don't worship or give anything else that allegiance that belongs to God. And, and make sure you're behaving yourself and so on. Paul sees these things connected. And I, I can't be too graphic and take too much time. But can you just allow me to explore it just a little bit? I, I just want to say to you, there's a connection between the kind of intimacy we can have with God when we are drawn into his presence and the kind of intimacy we can have with one another. Paul makes that a connection, I believe, in Ephesians 5 and sort of makes it plain. So it sets us up to see how dangerous worship is. You begin to love something. You begin to long for something. You begin to worship something. Even something that's decent and sound and good. And it distracts you from who God is. And you lose your sight of God long enough. And you'll lose your moral compass. And you'll start doing things you would never have thought you were able to do. We've got to watch our behavior, but with all of this advice together, and he says we have to watch ourselves. We've got to watch our behavior, but we have to watch who we worship and make sure we worship the true God of this world and nothing, nothing else, anything else is dangerous to us. Now, is it just me being senseless? Or is it just the privilege of the interim? You probably have me just to put up with just a few more weeks anyway. But I want to venture in to talk to you about the election. And I can almost assure you virtually no one, and in a way not even myself, wants to hear what I have to say. You have within you, within this church, strong feelings both ways about the election. And I just want to warn you. I want you to be a good citizen. I want you to take every advantage of the law, and, and, and I want you to pursue the Christian cause and Christian causes uh, in the public square. I'm all for that. But let me just tell you this. I can get so focused on what I think is right and the right decision, and I can even be right, but I can be so given to that and so occupied by that and so consumed by that that you know what I do? I start worshiping that. I start thinking that's the only hope for the world. I start thinking that's the only answer, right? And I give an attention and a focus toward that thing that frankly only belongs to God. And watch out when I lose my bearing. Now listen, folks, I know some of you feel strongly, and you, you want to know this? I, I feel strongly 
But I just want to say to you, let's take uh, the worst fear that you might be imagining, the worst fear, let's extrapolate uh, however you think the election has turned out or should turn out. Let, let's look forward. Maybe if your worst fears were realized and you look 20 years down the road and we become an oppressive sort of Nazi kind of state, or we, uh, what would the other side imagine? Well, you look 20 years down the road and we become a kind of an oppressive communist sort of a state. And even if you're right about that, all I have to tell you is this. If that were the case, when that day comes, what should God find you doing? He should find you worshiping Him. He should find you being privileged to be a part of the church. He should find you coming to church because you know there's something that happens because it's not just some wooden mechanical practice, but it's a spiritual connection between God and ourselves and ourselves and one another. And that becomes ever so vital. And we must keep this worship alive and we must come and be true to this worship with everything that we are. And if anything, even a good idea and a good noble goal keeps us from doing that, then we've gotten off track and we've let something else come to be occupying this place that only belongs to God. And when we do that, we're going to start losing our way. And you'll start misbehaving and trying to make the connection you should only make with God and trying to make that connection some other way. It's just going to come, it's going to unravel on us. What keeps us true is our focus and attention through Jesus Christ on the one true God. And that's what keeps you. And I know many of you are disappointed. I understand that. And I share disappointment on so many levels myself, I, I assure you. I just want to say to you, I'm not going to let my frustration with what's going on in front of us keep me from retooling, posturing again, getting my focus, getting my bearing, and saying, no matter what comes, it may be the worst nightmare I've ever dreamed of, but no matter what you think comes, I'm going to keep my focus on serving the one true God. I was so privileged uh, just recently to hear an interview with a, a remarkable church historian, uh, a guy named Justo Gonzalez, and uh, he was uh, telling about an interview he had years ago with some Christians in China. During the Cultural Revolution, these poor Christians were hounded and hunted and mistreated, many murdered and tortured. It was a horrible thing. Their churches were boarded up and some repurposed, some knocked down. And he wondered, how in all of that stretch of time did you keep the church alive? What was it that helped you keep the church alive? And they talked about the power of connecting with other believers. And he wondered, well, how did you connect? Uh, you, you weren't allowed to have a meeting. Uh, you were hounded and, and, and reviewed and overseen by authorities. You, you couldn't hardly do anything that looked like church without being arrested or mistreated. How, how do you mean? And they would talk about the simplest things. One really captured my attention. When everything else was going crazy, they would walk by in this busy street, and in front of the church, they would walk by repeatedly at some risk. 
and walked back repeatedly. And when they came across another member, all they felt like they could do is just this. Just nod. Right. Now you talk about social distancing, right? All they could do is just nod. And you and I, we, we've got to connect together. And you may be devastated, you may be completely satisfied, I don't know where you are. I'm just trying to tell you this. We've got to make sure we keep our connection spiritually. And we need to make sure that our focus is above all, that one day whatever God brings us to, and directs us to do and achieve through our new pastor and so on, we've got to keep our focus, we've got to keep ready, we've got to keep worship, worshiping, uh, the true God, and we need to ready our hearts. And we can't have our final love and devotion given to anything else, not even to something really good. That devotion belongs to God, and when we get that right, I think we'll get a certain appetite. And faith is restored and faith is given and strengthened when we can just look at one another and have that spiritual nod that we belong to the same Lord and we belong to the kingdom and we, be and we belong for his kingdom and we want to work now in his kingdom. Paul gives great advice in the rest of this chapter. I would encourage you to go on and, and read it in a way that's uh, it's really the, maybe the focus and the culmination of the sermon about how we ought to treat one another uh, if, the, if this is the case, and if we were really worshiping God, wouldn't we defer to one another? And wouldn't we be uh, very anxious to kind of minister to one another? And, and Paul talks about how he ministers, and he doesn't minister to kind of satisfy his own needs. He ministers with an, an attentiveness to the spiritual consequences of the people he's ministering to. That's why he tries to be all things to all people. He's trying to make sure that the way he lives his life puts forward the gospel without compromise to every person he comes across. This, I believe, is a danger we always face. We could face it when things were going very well. We could face it when things are going bad. But it's so easy to move our mark just a little bit. Now you say, Randy, we're not out worshiping pagans. We're, we're not eating meat offered to idols. So what do, you, what do you mean? And I just want to tell you and warn you, just being off the mark a little bit matters. And if I were to set out to walk home, my home place back in Fort Worth, I think it's that way. Is that right? I'm a city boy, you, somebody's got to help me. But it's mostly that way, right? I think I'd see a few things along the way that would help me direct my course. But just imagine how being a little bit off matters. You see what I'm saying? In time, being a little bit off matters. And we must be attuned again and again to put no one on this throne except the God we worship, the God Almighty, who we have the privilege to call as Father. One last story. I also was blessed when I heard 
the story of this African man who goes by his short name, Manny. And um, he had uh, been a powerful, powerful saint, a, 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 a Christian who seemed to just walk in the strength and the power of God. And all these forces of evil were seeming to brew around him. And again and again, the Lord strengthened him and helped him. And he lived a remarkable, powerful life. And Christians all around depended on him on one such occasion. They came and sent word to him. And yes, he went and he saw a woman that I think fulfills every image and description that we would have of any kind of film about demon possession. They had restrained her to keep her from injuring herself. And she was there sort of bound to this big chair that they had her kind of set on. And um, and she uh, had been uh, just causing all sorts of commotion in the neighborhood and so on. And again, when he went in, she manifested this wild, strange, powerful male voice that was strong and loud like it was amplified on the speaker and spoke directly to him. And when he's telling the story of this, he said, for just a moment there, I started to fear. I started to fear. And fear uh, was in, uh, at, he was at risk of being gripped by fear. And he, and he tells the author I'm reading, he tells his, his friend, I realized at that moment when I was about to be so frightened that I was an idolater. And it's uh, confusing. It's, it's, what? It's, it, it's not wrong to be fearful in dangerous positions. But listen to the wisdom of this great saint. He says, when I was granting so much fear to that demon, I was granting that demon a place in my life that belongs only to God. And I came to remember that I am serving the God of all this world. And that gave me the courage to face the danger of that situation and go in and speak to that name powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you, idolatry shows up ever so suddenly in all sorts of places. And there's only one throne for our hearts and our lives and our minds and for our church, and that one throne needs to be occupied by Jesus and no one else. The God of all this world and no one else. Father, Son, and Spirit and no one else. And dear ones, if we keep this God first, then we can make it. We'll know how to behave and we'll know how to reach and minister the world around us. But without him, we'll falter. It's time. It's time to check our hearts and spirits and gain a stubborn vision that we will face whatever will come because our hearts and minds belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is where we've got to put a stake down. And from here, we can go on and face whatever would come.